kicking off a brand new teaching series this week called New to the Area. And uh, I'm excited about where we're going, excited about what God has in store for us in this series. I want to begin by taking kind of an unscientific poll, just by a show of hands. How many of us have moved? You've changed residences in the last, let's say, 10 years. Let me just see a show of hands. Wow. We are a transient bunch. Okay, go ahead and let me ask you this question. How many of us have moved two or more times in the last 10 years? Wow. Man, my heart bleeds for y'all. I, I, I can't even imagine. How many of you never want to move again? That's kind of, okay, that's what I thought. Well, I think it's fascinating to look at the reasons why people move. Sometimes it's a, it's a life station thing, like maybe you've, finished school and you're changing towns, or maybe, maybe you've added more kids to the roster than you had when you moved into the place where you're living. Sometimes there can be like a, a big financial swing up or down that makes you want to move, need to move. Um, what else? Sometimes people want to just to change a pace and they think, you know what, we've been in the burbs for a while, I want to try urban dwelling and they move downtown. Sometimes people say, man, I want to move out to the country, I want to buy a little acreage, have some goats and some chickens and that, that happens too. I know there are a lot of people too who have decided to move because you didn't want to be the last one out and have to turn out the lights in California. Whatever the reason might be for moving, I'm teasing, I tease because I care. If you're from California, we're thrilled that you're here and happy, happy to have you. Just see that we stay that way. No, I'm kidding. We really are. We really are happy. But it, it, moving is a big deal. And I think the longer you've been in the place that you're moving from, the bigger a deal it becomes to move. You've got the, the packing and the purging and deciding what to pack and what to get rid of, calling the movers. If you're, if you're moving across country, there's travel involved. You've got the unpacking and the settling in and getting rid of boxes, finding a new grocery store, what's your route to school, your new route to work. Maybe, especially if you've got kids, man, you better find your route to the emergency room. I know when we moved to Austin, Joe was not quite one year old when we moved. And the day that we drove into Austin, Julie looked at me and she goes, we're going to need to know how to get to a hospital. I just, because of him, I just feel like we're going to be in an emergency room. And she was dead right, by the way. There was the Sunday morning, our church was about 18 months old, I think, and I was getting ready to preach. Julie had the kids and was getting ready to do our children's ministry, and uh, she called me on the phone and said, Joseph got a hold of some cold medicine that was in a bowl on top of the kitchen table. I'm on my way to the emergency room. I was like, we know the route. And everything turned out fine, and he's 25 and doing great. But those kind of things, you, you think about when you move locations, when you change your address. There's a lot more to it than just filling out forms when we are, in fact, changing our address. When a person chooses to follow Christ, I mean, they, they become a Christian. And by that, what we mean is they, they take the intentional personal, deliberate step of placing their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, for their hope in the future, and, and they choose to believe that his death on the cross and resurrection is sufficient to achieve the forgiveness of their sins, and they accept it personally. When that happens in a person's life, they undertake the most profound, 
eternity-shaking, life-changing change of address that is even possible. This challenge of changing addresses, of, of getting settled in a new location, if not geographically, then certainly spiritually and psychologically and relationally, is the exact challenge. It's the, it's the dilemma that really drives the entire book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. Now, 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter and was written to a group of churches in a particular region in that part of the world. If you've got your Bibles, look in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start just with verse 1. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, if I can be completely transparent, sometimes when I'm reading in the New Testament, most letters that were written, that were included in the canon of Scripture, start out kind of similar to this. It tells who's writing it, who they're addressing, and then it goes into kind of why they're writing, and then it says what they're writing. It would be very, very easy to kind of hydroplane past verse 1, but there is so, so much packed into just the introduction to 1 Peter that I want to take just a second and, and kind of unpack it, because over the next few weeks, we're going to be mining this letter for what God has, not only what he intended through Peter to these churches that he's addressing, but also for you and me 2,000 years after Jesus walked on the earth as a human being. It's an amazing thing about Scripture. This is one of the things I love about the Bible, that God, in his brilliant grace, has given us the Bible that was absolutely written by specific people to specific audiences at a specific time for specific purposes. But because the entire word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit, there is eternity written into every page of the Bible. Every single word, everything in the Bible is there for a purpose, for us to understand who God is and what it means and how we relate to him as his creatures, as his creation. And 1 Peter is no different than any other book of the Bible in this respect. It is so, so rich. Now, very, very quickly, I want to just touch on something. It says, I am writing to, the, to you who are chosen by God. So right out of the barrel, we're talking about predestination. Isn't that fun? Well, let's just dive into that, and I'll explain predestination in 25 words or less. Predestination is a biblical fact. God does, in fact, know who will and will not respond to the gospel. God knows who will choose to respond to his grace initiative. Predestination is real, and also real is free will. God has given us a free will, the choice to respond to his gospel initiative. Jesus said in the book of Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone opens and allows me in, I will come in and dine with him and have relationship with him. So you have predestination and you have free will. They miraculously and supernaturally work together. If anyone ever tells you, I understand predestination perfectly, let me explain it to you. 
Here's what you need to do. Run for the hills. Nobody perfectly understands how this works together, but they are both true at the same time. Where predestination begins and free will ends, where either ends and begins, that is a mystery of God. The Bible says we know now dimly. We look through a glass dimly, but then in heaven, we will know as we are known. We'll, we'll understand it one day, but in this world, with our finite minds, we cannot fully grasp an infinite God. So let's just kind of live with that uncertainty, that unknown, but accept the truth and the reality of both predestination, chosen by God, and free will. We respond to that calling. But then he says, I'm writing to you who are living as foreigners in these provinces. This is, this is kind of the theme of the entire book, that as a follower of Christ, you still live in this world, but you are no longer of this world. You live with the people around the people that you've always been around, but now your citizenship has changed. Your residency, where you reside, your may not have moved, but your citizenship is now different. You are no longer just a citizen of this world. You're a citizen of heaven. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And as such, we live in this world as, as aliens, as foreigners. This is a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. We are just passing through, but God has left us here to be a blessing. He has left us here to lead people to Christ. He has left us here to accomplish his purposes in the world. We have a supernatural calling, a divine calling placed on the life of every single follower of Christ. The good news is you can do this in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't mean that you necessarily have to, you know, sell everything and move to the jungles of Borneo to become a missionary. That may be God's calling for your life, but probably not. But you could be a foreign missionary in the heart of Austin, Texas. You could work in downtown Austin. And by virtue of the fact that you are now a citizen of the kingdom of God, your perspective, your priorities, your motives, your thoughts, your words, your actions, those things are all different now. And they, they ought to be different. This is what it ought to look like if we are truly following Christ. This is... This is the calling of God on our lives. Now, when I read these provinces where these churches are located, you look at Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, don't go looking for an Airbnb vacation rental in these places. These were, these were the city-states and regions as they were known, but I do want to show you where they were on the map because it is critically important to understanding the context and therefore the application of First Peter. Let's start here with Lake Hills Church. Brooks Neely on our tech team built this for us. Let's just go to Google Earth. We'll start here where we are right now. We'll pan out. There you go. You see Austin, center of the known universe. Then we begin panning over to the east, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, some other stuff. Then you get out over the Atlantic Ocean. Now we're moving east and we're headed over towards Europe. We're headed, you'll see Portugal, Spain, France, Italy. In the south, there's Africa, Chad, Libya, Tunisia, Egypt. Go up from Egypt, you'll see Syria. Syria is just a little bit north of Jerusalem where the church was founded. And northwest of Syria is modern-day Turkey, and it's in this area 
that these regions are located, Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Pontus, and Cappadocia. These churches were on the frontier, the front lines of the expansion of the church at this point. First Peter was probably written about 62, 63 AD. And at this time, this region is about 900 miles away from Jerusalem. 900 miles where you have these fledgling churches that are out on the frontier. Now, it's interesting that about 200 years from now, that region in modern-day Turkey would become the epicenter of the church. The Roman Emperor Constantine would move the seat of Rome to Constantinople, Constantine, and it was from there that the church would radiate and make its way around the world. Remember, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and even to the ends of the earth. Well, at this moment, these churches were kind of at the ends of the earth. They were at least at the ends of the range and the reach of the body of Christ. And so Peter is writing to these churches to encourage them, to equip them. And he's, he's equipping them for what is about to happen. Not so much that they're going to become the epicenter of the Christian church, but the persecution, the persecution that has already begun in Rome under Emperor Nero. Nero was the one that we know historically is responsible for the martyrdom of Paul and Peter. Paul was beheaded in Rome. Church history tells us that Peter was crucified, but he refused to be crucified in the same way that Christ was, and so he was crucified upside down. Peter is trying to help these churches understand there's a persecution coming that you, you have no idea. It had started in Rome, but it wouldn't be limited to Rome. Nero was an absolute psychopath. And I say that with no judgment. That's just a statement of fact. Like today's Sunday, Nero's a psychopath. You can just kind of put those two together. But Nero hated, hated the Christian church. At first, the Christian church was just kind of considered an offshoot of Judaism. It was just something that they were doing down there in Israel and Palestine and let them do whatever they want to do, no problem. But as the word and the way began to grow, Nero began to feel threatened and he began to hate and persecute and torture and kill Christians. And these Christians were martyred for their faith. It was commonplace for Nero to throw women and their children into the middle of the Colosseum just to watch them torn apart by lions and tigers for sport and entertainment. He would light torches in the cities of Rome with Christian bodies that had been dipped in tar and set aflame while they were still living. This is the kind of a mind we're talking about. And so Peter, knowing that this is coming and it's beginning here in Rome and it will be spreading, is writing to these churches. Look at how he continues in verse 2. Verse 2 of Peter 1. God the Father knew you and he chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. So he's saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make sure you keep in mind who you are, and I want you to make sure you keep in mind whose you are, that, that you belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and, and you, were, you were baptized into this faith. You, you chose to follow Christ, and, and you're in it to win it. Don't ever lose sight of that, and as you go, may he continue to give you more and more grace and peace. You see, it's not new that being a Christian costs. 
It's not new that Christians feel outside the norm. As a matter of fact, if you were to do a comprehensive study of the history of the church, what you would find is really fascinating. We are at our absolute best. I mean our best, personally and spiritually, when our backs are against the wall. When we cozy up to power, when we try to align ourselves with political power, that is when we corrupt our message. That is when we get sideways with the gospel. It is when we are backs are against the wall. It's when we are living as foreigners and aliens in this world that God does the most powerful, most beautiful things of all. And so Peter is trying to remind them of this. He's trying to remind us. And, and the takeaway here is to remember this. Accept your relocation. Accept the fact that you have been relocated from this place to that place. And just, just own it and walk around it. But make sure that you accept the relocation for your purpose. That you have been given a purpose in this world. Yes, God has relocated you. Your citizenship has changed. There's, there's a change of address, but he leaves us here for a purpose. We are here to be the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus himself in a world that is literally dying for it. That means we've got to be willing to stand up for it. When we remember what was paid for us, when we remember that we are his, bought by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we remember we got work to do. We're, we're not supposed to be a little holy huddle. We walk into church every Sunday, hey, how you doing? Coffee's good this week. I like it. It's a little cold. This is our team meeting. This, this is what this is, we gather here so that we then go out. This is our purpose. Holding on to our why is so, so important. When you, when you remember your why, that makes what and how a lot easier. When you remember, oh yeah, I'm here for a purpose. God wants to use me in this world. Then when there are problems, when there are challenges, when there are setbacks, you kind of go, okay, all right, here's my purpose. And my purpose is still greater than any trial, challenge, or setback. You have to hold on to the why. And it's in this relocation that we find our purpose our purpose. Man, I, I, joined a, uh, I joined a CrossFit gym. This was probably 10 years ago now. And uh, that's how I got swole. And um, <laughs> that was just hurtful. But I joined this CrossFit gym, and there was one guy, one guy in the whole place, one member who was a part of our church. Nobody else went to our church. And I was like, man, this, this is great. I, I love, and I really like the guy that, that's part of our church. And so we were doing a workout. This was early on in, in my tenure there. And, uh, and I was, you know, going around shaking hands. Hi, I'm Mac and blah, 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 blah. And, and we got into the workout probably two or three mornings after I'd started. And, and it, was, it was just a beatdown of a workout. We were, I mean, it was just uh, miserable. And this one guy was on the pull-up bar, and he was just grinding, just I mean, just stupid strong. How many of y'all have done a pull-up in the last year? Let me just see a show of hands. Just, hey, just for grins, 
you ought to go try to do a pull-up this afternoon. Try, tell you what, just do five. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, they're hard. This guy was just blowing through them. And, and he came off of the bar, and he shouted this expletive. Rah! Super loud. Really early in the morning. And it's a word that is not safe for work or TV. And out of the corner, I was in the middle of my workout. I didn't, I didn't even bat it. I was like, whatever. Well, I saw my friend out of the corner of my eye lean in and whisper to him. And I, I couldn't hear what he was saying. And then I saw him point at me. And, but, so I didn't know what was said, but I knew what was said, you know. And this was the guy's response. He goes, I don't care what he does for a living. He better get used to it if he's going to hang out in here. And I was like, these are my people. I love hanging around those kind of people. I love being around people who have no pretense. They don't care if you're a pastor. Man, when I tell, if I tell people, hey, I'm a pastor, and that nine times out of ten, that shuts the conversation down. Like, oh, and then they start recounting everything they've already said in the conversation, trying to think if they've been cussing at all. It's so funny. I got my hair cut by a, a new person the other day, and, and, and I mean, whew, this person, I mean, could, could cuss paint off the wall. And I, I just met him. I just met him. And so I'm, you know, I, I was not answering in kind for the record, but I was just like, okay. And about, I don't know, 10 minutes in, she goes, so what do you do? And I go, <laughs> I felt so bad for her. I go, I'm a pastor of a church here in town. She goes, oh. <laughs> but our purpose, our purpose is people like that. That's why we're here. If God just wanted you to be saved, He'd beam you home the second you accepted Christ. But he didn't. We're here for a purpose, and our relocation is a reminder of that purpose. Peter goes on, verse 3, verses 3 and 4. Check this out. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Now, born again, real quickly, let me do this, just by way of explanation. Born again is the phrase that Jesus uses in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee who was intrigued and curious about Jesus, but he went to Jesus at night to, to meet him and interview him and, and ask him questions because he didn't want the other Pharisees to know he was talking to Jesus. And, and Jesus told him, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He meant spiritually being born again. It's a new life. That, that's, that's what the phrase means. That's where that phrase comes from. Peter uses it here. We have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. So, we remember the cross and the resurrection, no doubt. That, that's where our citizenship changed. That's where we came into relationship with God. But because Jesus rose from the dead, we can trust that he actually will come back again one day and, and bring us to be with him in heaven, that that will happen because that happened, that will happen. We can trust him. 
And so there's this, this, great, this great expectation. So first of all, we accept our relocation, but Peter moves on here and he says, we also, we also have to expect the celebration. Expect this celebration that will be heaven. I think a lot of times we don't think enough about heaven. If we could focus our hearts and our minds on the end game, on what will be when we are united perfectly with God himself, with each other, it kind of helps us because when you start to expect that kind of celebration, the Bible calls it the wedding feast of the Lamb, that it'll be a celebration, a party for all time. We expect the celebration for perspective. Expect that celebration for your perspective. When you begin to think eternally, that helps to put and frame perspective on what's going on in the here and now, in the what's in it for me right here, right now. And all of a sudden, we start to realize the challenges, the trials, the suffering, the persecution, those things compared to heaven. Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, he says, these are light and momentary troubles that we're facing. Now, they're real. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have many problems. But they're light and momentary in perspective when we start to understand the sweep and the scope of eternity then we kind of start to go, okay, that helps me to understand where this fits. And that's what Peter's telling him here. He said, I, I, want you to, I want you to keep in mind the celebration that awaits those of us who follow Christ. I want you to keep in mind the reality of heaven and keep in mind that it's not just about what's here and what's now. It's about here and now, and it's about there and then also. And there and then is a lot longer than here and now. So frame your perspective eternally and not momentarily. Frame your perspective and understand that God is moving and doing something beyond what we can even see or imagine. And so then we start to understand, okay, that, that helps, me to, helps me to understand where Things lie. Look at verses five through seven. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation. Now, just very quickly, when a person chooses to follow Christ and they step into that relationship, they begin it, they surrender their lives, that is saved, forgiven, period, hard stop. Peter here is referring to the salvation, the fulfillment of that which begins in that moment. We don't experience the fullness of salvation here in this life. We can't. We still live in a fallen world. We are still in process. We still have sin in our lives. We will continue to make mistakes and continue to sin, but there will be a fulfillment of it in heaven. That's what he's talking about here. Through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So, be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials 
will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So when you're in the middle of a trial, when you're in the middle of, of suffering for your faith, people are mocking you or ridiculing you for what you believe, then you can know God is using even that, as hard as it is, as unpleasant as it is, as much as you wish people didn't make fun of you, God is using even that. We stay in the game because we remember, oh yeah, we've got this eternal perspective, but not only is it eternal, but also in the here and now. Right now, God is making me stronger. I had a chance to visit with a young woman who had recently graduated from college. She graduated from college two years ago, and she is praying through and thinking about her next move professionally in her career. And as we were talking, she was, she was sharing with me very, you know, candidly. She goes, I'll be honest with you, I get really anxious about work and about job. I don't know where the economy's going. I don't know what I'm going to do. And it's, it's really a hard time right now. And she's engaged, by the way. So she's got a lot going on. And it hit me in the middle of the conversation that this young woman, she had graduated college in the middle of a global pandemic. She graduated college in the middle of a global pandemic and then started her career in that same global pandemic. Now she's thinking about her next moves. And as it hit me, I just said, hey, just I want to point out something to you. I'm, I'm a lot older than you are, but I just want you to know, probably, more than likely, in the next 20 years, you're not going to face anything as hard as you've already been through. And so I just want to encourage you with that. I, I hope I don't jinx anything by saying that out loud, but you know, you, you've, you've overcome a lot to graduate when you did, to start your career across country. And, and the reality is God has not brought you this far to leave you hanging. And, and you could just hear, she just kind of like decompressed a little bit, just, just almost audibly in the conversation. And I think that, that's exactly what Peter's describing here. When God allows us to go through trials, when God allows us to suffer. He's doing it for a reason. He's preparing us for something. And as I've said, this, this group of churches, these believers here in this region, we're going to have to know why they believed what they believed and know that it was worth it. Verses 13 through 16, Peter says, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. You didn't know. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Peter raised the bar, didn't he? It's important that you understand what holy means. Holy means set apart for divine purposes. Set apart for divine purposes. So you, you have to understand that 
this relocation, that celebration, all of that means that we're here for a purpose. Prepare your minds for action. So we accept the relocation for our purpose. We expect that celebration for perspective. But here Peter is saying, inspect the situation for your progress. Inspect the situation, the trial, the challenge, the setback that you're in the middle of. Inspect it for progress. I want to ask you a question. And you don't have to raise your hand on this one at all. But it, I, think, I think it's interesting. If you feel like it, play along. How many of us right now are walking through something, in the middle of something, or dealing with something that you wish you weren't, that, that's a trial or a challenge or a setback. Is anybody, anybody wrestling with that that feels like raising their hand? Okay, if y'all don't mind, keep your hand, those of you who did, keep your hands up, just go ahead and keep your hands up for a second. Now, I want everybody to look around the room. Look, around, look at how many hands are in this room. It's not, a, it's not 100%. But we've probably got some liars in here. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's maybe not 100%, but it's a quorum. When you're in the middle of it, inspect it for progress. Take a look at it and see what is it, what is it that God is building? What is it that God is teaching? What is it that God is showing me in the middle of this situation. I'm, I'm going I'm to peel back the layers. I'm not going to just take it at face value. I'm not going to just sit down and go, why me? It's okay to do that for a minute, but get past that and inspect the situation for progress. There is zero growth in any part of life without struggle. No one grows without struggle in any way. You want to get in shape? It's going to be a struggle. You want to grow intellectually? Man, you're going to have to be stretched and pushed. You're going to have to read stuff you never thought you'd pick up the book of. Growth demands struggle. And so when we're in the middle of the struggle, the trial, the, the tribulation, the suffering even, we know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that because he rose from the dead, we have the opportunity to live in relationship with him in this life and forever, perfectly. So we always, we always have hope. Always. There is always hope. Peter concludes this section in verse 18 and 19. He says, now you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. It is always Jesus. It is always the cross and the resurrection. Always. He says, whatever you're going through, always remember the cross. Always remember the empty tomb. 
Whatever else you go through, whatever else you encounter, there is always the hope of the resurrection. Now, I don't know where you are today. I don't know where you might be in your journey. But I do know that this hope is available to all. It's available by responding to his grace initiative. Grace means that we don't deserve it. By definition, that's grace. I wanna ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. If you're here today and you've never taken that step, then we invite you to pray. A prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning to live in that grace, to live in a relationship with Christ. If you would like to take that step, then we invite you just to pray right where you're sitting. Silently from your heart to God's, just say something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. And so I confess my sin to you. I confess my sin in order to claim your forgiveness, your grace. And in this moment, Jesus, I identify you. I, I will name you as the Lord of my life. And I will follow you with everything that I have. I know it won't be perfect, but I know that it'll be real. Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. If you would just remain with your heads bowed for a moment. If that was your prayer, then this is just the biggest moment of your life. And as a church, we would love to help with the moments that follow. This is just a beginning for you. A couple of things, if you would, let us know that you prayed that prayer, that you made that decision to follow Christ today. If you're here in the room, you can use the QR card that's in the seat back in front of you. If you're on one of the front rows, it's underneath your chair. If you're online, there's a place for you to indicate, I raised my hand today. That, that's for you so that we can begin a dialogue to help with what's next. Second thing, if you would, here or online, as our heads are bowed, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it up high in the air for a moment as a statement physically of the commitment spiritually that you just made. And know as a church family, we celebrate that with you. And our family tradition around here is as you put your hands down, we're gonna put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.